Greetings, citizens. This is the Cavalier. Clearly, I escaped mostly intact from my imprisonment a few weeks ago. For those with a degree of compassion, I will add that Tropic Cyclone also managed to escape. I will also admit that is all I know for certain. She and I unintentionally parted ways on the last leg of our journey. And, while she is a very visible beacon of energy in this time of the universe, she does not seem to be very active. And she is in Atlantis, which has cut off contact with the surface world for, oh, I think the 27th time this century? Also, she was not a very visible beacon of energy prior to our return. Something happened to her. I am just unsure what that something is. I do know she has made no attempt today to upload a podcast of her own. I wish I had prepared more for this possibility. The next question those in more distant universes may be wondering is, what happened with Nightmare and her vessel, Emerald Siren? Well, that's a long story, and embarrassing to many, including myself. The short answer is, Nightmare's consciousness has been re-imprisoned, and Emerald Siren is a guest of the Ivory Tower until sufficient explanations have been provided. The long answer involves an impolite military term Colonel Creed kept repeating. Basically, the fight between Tropic Cyclone and I had drawn a fair bit of media attention, and, therefore, we may have been caught off guard by Emerald Siren's attack, but a very large number of heroes saw it coming, and deduced the reason behind it. And they all showed up at once, with very little planning within their own groups, and even less planning between groups. And, not that I could control it, my return from imprisonment was timed very poorly, and basically started the whole fight over. And let's not forget that there are many villains who like to see such a huge group of distracted heroes. One of them managed to steal all of the technology Emerald Siren had taken from me, along with Sid and what is left of the robot K-40Z. This guy stole Sid and some of the most dangerous technology in existence, from right under the noses of the Victory Champions, Argo, and seven of the tougher solo acts out there. Weirdly, every indication is that this thief was none other than Override, who has been retired for close to 20 years. I mean, seriously, Override. You're one of the best who ever lived, but you're still quite mortal, and pushing 70. Ignoring the danger my own equipment presents, let's admit that you really should know better than be involved in any way with the Chaos Unit. You should be enjoying your retirement, not proving you're still the world's smartest thief. Because this is the opposite of smart. Got it? Well, that's enough catching up. Let's get on with movie reviews. The first movie on today's list is called Captain America. Since some of our listeners were confused when I finally reviewed the second Amazing Spider-Man movie, I shall clarify. This Captain America movie is from 1990 and does not have anything to do with Marvel's ongoing cinematic universe. I don't believe it had much to do with a budget either, but that isn't its only problem. This version starts out in Italy during World War II. Nazi scientists are working in secret to create a super-soldier. Two children are brought in for final testing. One of the scientists, Dr. Maria Vaselli, finds this appalling, so Dr. Vaselli escapes before the experiment is completed and flees to America. In an attempt to ease her guilt, Dr. Vaselli turns herself over to the American government and agrees to finish her experiments for them. The American government, unlike the Nazis, seeks a volunteer and finds Steve Rogers, who is too sickly to join the military otherwise. The experiment is of course a success, but during the celebratory handshakes, a Nazi spy shoots Dr. Vaselli. Rogers is given a very colorful and winged uniform, and I use that term loosely, 
and he is sent on a trail of the spy ring that killed Dr. Vaselli. He comes across the Red Skull, an earlier product of Vaselli's experiments, who is about to launch a nuclear missile to destroy Washington, D.C. The Red Skull very easily defeats him and... <sighs> ties him to the missile. During his free flight to D.C., Rogers manages to free one foot and kick the missile hard enough to veer it off course. It crashes in Alaska, without exploding, and buries Rogers deep enough in the ice to cryogenically preserve him for the next few decades. The U.S. government never attempts to search for the missile. Then, in a turn of events almost as ridiculous as a poorly balanced missile successfully navigating from Italy to D.C., Rogers is thawed out. He eventually makes his way from Alaska to Los Angeles to his sweetheart's house, still convinced somehow that it is the 1940s. Sure, it might be confusing that he's being chased by modern-day Nazis, but their clearly modern-day technology should have been a bit of a tip-off. Conveniently, his girlfriend still lives in the same place. She has, however, married someone else, and her granddaughter lives with her. Also conveniently, the granddaughter is roughly Steve's age, and is played by the actress who played his girlfriend during her younger years. This neatly tidies up any confusing romantic problems for the good captain. <laughs> I really wish my life had a good writer. So, after a few more time-displacement hijinks, Rogers accepts what happened to him and manages to uncover a plot to kidnap the president. It seems the Red Skull survived after World War II, and he ran his own underground terrorist organization, and now he wants to kidnap the president, apparently to stop a world treaty regarding pollution, which seems strange. A lot of people are willing to make a fast buck on lax pollution regulations, but not many Nazi sympathizers find government regulation troubling. So Steve Rogers has to rescue the president from the Red Skull's band of terrorists. Oh, and one of those terrorists is the Red Skull's own daughter. It doesn't matter too much, but we'll get to it again later. So Cap fights his way through a castle full of terrorists and saves the president. And because this is a movie about how awesome America is, the president refuses to leave until the Red Skull is stopped. The Red Skull has some mental issues to work out while this is going on, so he plants a piano and the detonator for a nuclear bomb on the top of the castle. Yes, the piano. Apparently it helps him think. When Rogers and the President make their way to the roof, Red Skull starts the timer on the nuclear device and monologues. His daughter is slightly less committed to the cause, and becomes concerned that her father plans to kill her along with everyone else. That conversation is handled rather clumsily, and nothing really happens because of it, but it does add to the Red Skull's monologue, and that gives Rogers enough time to get close enough to throw his shield and save the day, which of course he does. This has the result of killing the Red Skull with gravity. Captain America shakes hands with the president and kisses his girlfriend's granddaughter. The treaty to save the world from pollution passes, and America and the world are safe once again. So what can we learn from this high school art project of a movie? 1. What is important to society often changes. In 1990, you wanted Captain America concerned with pollution. In 2014, I guess you were much more concerned with the government invading your privacy. Which is odd, because they've been really good at that since long before 1990. 2. Budget makes a difference. The script actually had some good ideas and even some interesting character portrayals. But it was clear every scene that cost more than about $20 was rewritten by the director's pet dog. Still, the writing was an improvement over the acting, 
and the acting was an improvement over the costumes. And three, if you kill the villain, his plot immediately ends. Because the nuclear device was on a timer, and the trigger to start the timer was what was in Red Skull's hands when he died. Which means, well, absolutely nothing except everyone still should have died because the bomb still should have gone off. <sighs> so let's get on to my second movie, The Dark Knight Rises. This is third and final in Christopher Nolan's trilogy that attempts to pretend Batman can exist in a universe lacking superpowers and even super technology. And it is clear Nolan's definition of realistic became less so with each installment. This movie begins by showing us the daring and absolutely impossible escape of a terrorist, only known as Bane. We then cut to Bruce Wayne, who has retired from being Batman after it caused the death of his never-girlfriend and drove Harvey Dent insane. He's become a recluse with a cane and a scruffy, I'm depressed beard. According to his doctors, his knees are devoid of cartilage, and overall a couple of years of being Batman has wrecked his body worse than any professional football player could imagine. Wayne's maid steals some things from him, because, it turns out, she is a very skilled fighter and a professional thief. Way to go on the background checks, Mr. Wayne. I wouldn't really care about this relatively small matter, but the primary motivation of the maid, Selina Kyle, is that she has an arrest record a mile long and is desperate to erase it. Anyway, Selina Kyle gets caught by Bruce while stealing, and, when he tries to stop her, she kicks his behind and escapes. Embarrassment and the sentimental value of the stolen objects make Wayne decide to return to Batmaning around Gotham, although without the Batsuit. Meanwhile, Wayne Tech is unveiling a new reactor technology that is cleaner, safer, and more powerful than anything seen before. Yes, the comparisons to Tony Stark are valid, but really, I'm sure there are hundreds of real companies working to make energy production safer and more efficient, so it really shouldn't be a surprise that fictional geniuses come up with the same idea, and get it to work. Anyway, one of the investors, Miranda Tate, shows up for the demonstration, and she and Wayne strike up a relationship. Bane shows up in Gotham and commits a bunch of crimes that make him public enemy number one. This includes robbing the Gotham Stock Exchange. For some bizarre reason, the robbery of the Stock Exchange causes Wayne Industries stock to tank, and Miranda Tate manages to take over the company. Police Commissioner Gordon tracks down Bane and gets beaten into a coma for his trouble. A rookie cop named Blake gets involved and winds up talking with Bruce Wayne. Blake basically starts out by telling Wayne he knows Wayne is Batman, and he gives him a pep talk, convincing him to actually put on the Batman outfit again. Bane finds some documents proving that Batman and Commissioner Gordon plotted to keep Harvey Dent's murder spree a secret. Then he steals most of Batman's equipment and hijacks the experimental reactor, which, it turns out, can be turned into a nuclear weapon by pushing buttons for less than five minutes. The police overreact to Gordon's beating and send every single policeman in Gotham into the sewers to find Bane. Well, except for Blake. Batman warns Blake that going into the sewers en masse is, you know, stupid. Bane blows up a football field and collapses the tunnels into the sewers at the same time, trapping the entire Gotham police force. Then he gives a long, incoherent speech and declares Gotham City free for one month, at which time he will detonate the bomb and wipe it off the face of the earth. Batman finds a way into the sewers with Selina Kyle's help. Instead of helping to free the hundreds of trapped and slowly starving men and women, he goes right after Bane and gets his back broken in the process. Being bored, Bane decides to leave Batman alive. 
He transports the paralyzed Bruce Wayne to the prison he'd grown up in and gives him a nice television so he can watch Gotham City descend into madness before being destroyed. He then returns to Gotham and makes a second speech, this time exposing dense murders and freeing everyone from prison. Bruce Wayne feels sorry for himself for about 45 minutes of screen time, then finally quits. So, ignoring Bane's impossibly flawless plans, the first superpower in this movie is demonstrated when a chiropractor actually manages to help someone. He somehow fixes Bruce Wayne's back, and then Wayne escapes the inescapable prison. At which point Wayne is literally penniless, in the middle of the desert, and lacking any idea at all. This shows off the plot's second superpower, because Wayne gets to Gotham in perfect health and with most of his Batman equipment in less than 48 hours. This time, Batman remembers to rescue the Gotham police force, which is somehow pretty hale and hearty after almost a month trapped in the sewers. Batman has a rematch with Bane, which he wins because Selina Kyle shows up and hits him with an anti-tank rocket. There's a non-surprising plot twist in there that adds about half an hour to the movie's length. Batman convinces everyone he has to play Kitten to save Gotham from the nuclear bomb. Wayne wills his fortune, and the Batman equipment, to Blake. There's one more completely unsurprising plot twist, but then the credits mercifully roll. I honestly liked this movie overall, but it's about an hour longer than it has any right to be, and that hour isn't very good. So, what lessons can be gleaned during the good parts of The Dark Knight Rises? One. Even movies with large budgets can forget to do things like hire a sound guy. 2. Quit putting plot twists into every movie under the sun. Plot twists are rarely necessary and difficult to pull off. If you foreshadow too much, they're not surprising and your audience is underwhelmed. If you don't foreshadow at all, they're just surprises that insult your audience. This movie provides examples of both, but no examples of good plot twists. And 3. There are a lot of people that know Bruce Wayne as Batman, but he's still going to use his throat cancer voice around them. I guess that's not a lesson so much as an observation, but I didn't know where else to put it. This is normally where I'd include Demographics Watch, but we're in the process of moving that to the blog. Instead, I'll encourage everyone to email TropicCyclone at SuperFrenemies.com. Remind her that she started this show, and she really should feel more responsible for it. Also, see if she'll tell you why she's been so quiet. It's unnerving. If you really want this week's demographic count, I'll sum it up in one sentence. Lots and lots of white people. If you still don't know why this is a problem, feel free to email me, thecavalier at superfrenemies.com, or leave us messages and find the detailed demographics watch counts at superfrenemies.com. You can also find past episodes on Stitcher, SoundCloud, and iTunes. With any luck, Tropic Cyclone will bother us with her opinions in another two weeks. If not, I will have to cover for her. Again. So, until next time, be good citizens. And remember, I'm the Cavalier.